Hello. Before we jump into the show, we need to shout out our awesome new sponsor, Marquee TV. Man, I was so excited when we got the news about the sponsor. You all might remember from a few weeks ago that I talked about my new Shakespeare project where I'm learning everything I can about Macbeth. It felt like we said the name Shakespeare out loud and the marquee people appeared and said, (laughs) we gotcha. It really did. Yeah. In case you're not familiar, Marquee TV is a streaming service. They have theater, ballet, opera, documentaries. There's a bunch of behind the scenes content of productions. Basically, it's a fun way to nerd out about the arts. Yeah, it's a streaming service that will take you to the best theaters in the world from the comfort of your own sofa. I've already added so many things to our watch list. Did you know there's a ballet based on the works of Beatrix Potter? I did. They've got a little preview video of somebody dancing around in a rabbit costume. Peter Rabbit doing ballet. (laughs) I also added a few hip-hop dance shows just to balance out the dancing bunnies. Yeah, (laughs) hip-hopra. That's what they call it. They do. It's so fun. Mozart's Requiem from the London Philharmonic Orchestra and a bunch of Shakespeare plays, including Richard II starring my pretend best friend, David Tennant. And Judy Dench talking about her long relationship with Shakespeare in a master class. Yeah, I love Judy Dench. Sure. But David Tennant. Yeah, that's quite a battle there. Okay. There's a special deal for our listeners. Marquee TV is offering three months of their service for 99 cents. You get three months of all of this good stuff for 99 cents yeah. with the code SSOP. That cost seems absurdly low to me. Like first, I expected it to be much higher given the quality of the content, but also 99 cents. You, you can't park next to a theater for 99 cents. Accurate. Also, if you watch Marquee TV, you get to see these shows maybe wearing your pajamas and hanging out with your cat yeah. or your dog. Yeah. It's a good way to sort of indulge your own curiosity. You can see all the performances of Hamlet or maybe the first 15 minutes of all of the performances of Hamlet, and you don't have to rope your friends and family into all of that. Or you could watch Richard II over and over and over and over. <laughs> What's the best angle for David Tennant in Richard II? Trick question. All of them. <laughs> anyway, You definitely need to explore the website because there is a ton of really fun, fascinating, engaging stuff on there. I went in specifically looking for Shakespeare and I found a ton of other things I wanted to watch. Yeah. You can keep up with what they're doing on social media at Marquee Arts TV. You can visit their website at marquee.tv. That's marquee.tv to get three months of their service for just 99 cents with the promo code SSOP. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. And now the show. Hello. Welcome to Strong Sense of Place. In each episode, we focus on one destination and discuss what makes it different than any other place on Earth. Then we recommend five books we love that took us there on the page. I'm Melissa Jolan. I'm David Humphreys. We're going around the world one great read at a time. Thanks for joining us. strong sense of place today we get curious about Argentina
In Two Truths and a Lie, I'm going to tell you about one of the greatest bank heists of all time. Ooh, I look forward to that. And then we're going to talk about five books we love. I'm recommending a murder mystery with a little bit of a love story by Argentina's most popular crime novelist. Oh, nice. I've got a very spooky little book that won a National Book Award. Cool. Yeah. But first, Mel's going to bring us up to speed with the Argentina 101. Argentina is in the southern part of South America, and it is huge. Yeah, I was surprised to find this out. It's the second largest country in South America, second to Brazil, and it's one-third the size of the United States. Yeah, I think it's a trick of the Mercator projection, that, that effect that happens when you flatten out the globe onto a piece of paper. Everything at the bottom and the very top gets squished down. Yeah, we don't actually have any idea how big things are no. in relation to each other. No. Unless you look at a globe. I like globes. Me too. Okay, moving on. Yep. On the west side of the country, the Andes Mountains run between Argentina and Chile. To the east is the Atlantic Ocean and Uruguay. The capital city is Buenos Aires. Breakfast in New York, dinner in Buenos Aires. The world grows ever smaller. Almost half of the population of the country lives in the area around Buenos Aires. And it's also sometimes called the Paris of South America. Yeah, because there was an attempt to make it look like Paris. Exactly. There yeah. is stunning architecture. All the greatest hits, neoclassical, Art Nouveau, Art Deco, Spanish Baroque, plus beautiful gardens, antique markets, museums, steakhouses, and a devotion to cafe culture. And a lot of sky, which is one of the things I love about Paris, too. You can be in the city and you'll still see a whole lot of sky. And light. Yeah. I want to tell you about some of the neighborhoods. The Recoleta is very cosmopolitan, with former palaces, fancy boutiques, and elegant townhouses that look like they were drop-shipped from Paris. Yeah. It's also where you find the Recoleta Cemetery. That's where Evita and other Argentinian luminaries are laid to rest. I love a stroll through a major cemetery. Sure. Who doesn't love a stroll through a major cemetery? <laughs> this one in particular has, like boulevards and beautiful mausoleums. I mean, it's very kind of formal yeah. and beautiful. That neighborhood's colorful artistic cousin is La Boca. It has lots of street art and boxy houses painted bright colors. And on the pedestrian street Caminito, musicians sit in the doorways of cafes and play tango music while dancers do the tango on the streets and sidewalks. That sounds nice. It looks really nice. Argentina has been a country of immigration for most of its history. Yeah, I was surprised by this, too. Yeah, it's estimated that more than 7 million European immigrants arrived in Argentina between 1880 and 1930. That explains why 97% of Argentines are of European origin, mostly Spanish and Italian. The official language is Spanish, and you'll also hear a lot of Italian, German, and Arabic. About 42% of Argentines speak English. And there's one tiny town where they speak Welsh. Welsh? Yeah. Amazing. We'll put more about that in show notes. Let's take a romp through colonialism. Oh, okay. The Spanish arrived in 1516 yep. and stuck around for 300 years. Which is rough because guests start to smell bad after three days. <laughs> then in 1806, the British attacked Buenos Aires and the Falkland Islands. Locals recaptured the capital, but not the islands. Four years after that, across the Atlantic, Napoleon captured all of the major cities in Spain, 
So while their Spanish overlords were distracted, the Argentines reclaimed their country and gained independence in 1816. Except for the Falklands, and that's still Still, contentious. Yes. The 20th century was mostly about authoritarianism. Juan Perón and his famous wife, Evita. Yeah. They were in power. Almost impossible for me to hear her name without thinking about the musical line. Don't cry for me, Argentina. I'll be talking about them later, so for now I'll just say she was adored for her devotion to helping the poor, but they were both pretty problematic. The 1970s and 80s were known for a military dirty war, and since 1983, Argentina has been a democracy. That's recent. Yeah. Let's talk about awesome things to do there. Okay. Because the country is so vast, the geography and climate vary quite a bit. Yeah. So I thought it would be fun to take a quick tour through each region and daydream about the things we could see and do there. Oh, all right. We'll start with the Pampas. Where's the Pampas? That's the flat grassland in the interior of the country. It has kind of a humid climate. It's where the cattle graze and they grow crops like wheat and soybeans. There are also clumps of pompous grass. If you're not familiar, pompous grass looks like fluffy beige feathers perched on slender green stalks. Even in still photos, they look like they're swaying in the breeze. They call it that because it's the grass that thinks it's better than all the other grasses. (laughs) Good one. (laughs) The pompous has charming old villages and ranches and gauchos. Oh. Not the pants, the cowboys. (laughs) Yeah. They're Argentinian cowboys. Yeah. They wear wide-brim hats, they wrangle cattle, and they've starred in literature and folklore since the 1800s. They are beloved and romantic figures in Argentina. Today, you can go on a gaucho day tour or visit the gaucho festival in November. The Pampas is also the place to eat at a traditional barbecue called an asado There's lots of red wine and salads, but the star of the show is grilled meats and sausages, like spicy chorizo and blood sausage called morcilla. That sounds like a fantastic time. There will also be chimichurri to drizzle on the meat. For people who aren't familiar, chimichurri is a magical sauce made with a lot of olive oil and a little red wine vinegar, and it's seasoned with garlic, chilies, oregano, and lots of fresh parsley. It's grassy and spicy, and you drizzle it onto grilled meat, and it's like herb heaven. Moving on. Okay. To the Northeast. This part of the country is also hot and humid. Yeah. But it's green with lush jungles, wetlands, and the famous Iwazu Falls. Do you get a little rainforest up there? Oh, yeah. Yeah. The falls, the Iwazu Falls, are taller than Niagara Falls in Canada and wider than Victoria Falls in Africa. Wow. The surrounding national park has trails and bridges that let you get into the splash zone. Oh, that's fun. And the most dramatic section is called the Devil's Throat. It is just a massive wall of roaring white water. I'll put a video in show notes. Sounds like it's just crying out to be used in a mystery title, too. It really does. Yeah. And if you like animals, the jungle there is home to tapers, giant anteaters, howler monkeys, ocelots, jaguars, and caimans. Now we're going to turn west toward the Andes. Okay. At the foot of the mountains are red volcanic plateaus, scrubby desert, 
and one of the best wine regions in the world. Huh. The snowmelt from the mountains comes down into canals and irrigates the grapes. Sure, that makes sense. A lot of really good Merlot there. Yeah. In the far northwest is the city of Salta la Linda. That means Salta the Fair. And there is an argument to be made that it's the most beautiful city in Argentina. Really? It has very ornate colonial architecture, and that's set against the stunning backdrop of the Andes Mountains. Heading south, we get to Patagonia, which is almost like another country within the country. It's very sparsely populated and rugged, with arid steppes, shockingly blue lakes, volcanoes, craggy mountain peaks, and glaciers. If you are Action Jackson, this is where you want to go. There's hiking, horseback riding, kayaking, biking, ice climbing, and the landscapes are just otherworldly. On Patagonia's Atlantic coast, you can go whale watching, right whales and orcas, and you might also see some elephant seals. It's also home to the world's largest population of penguins named for the explorer Magellan. Magellanic penguins? They are super cute. They're, of course, black with white bellies, but they sort of have white racing stripes on their heads and their chests, and they're not too big. Just tuck one in your pocket and take it home. Good. Finally, at the very southernmost point of South America is Tierra del Fuego. This is an archipelago that's shared by Chile and Argentina, and it is the definition of dramatic. Snowy mountains, glaciers, tundra, trees fighting to take a stand against the wind. Go trees. Team tree. (laughs) Hashtag team tree. (laughs) On the main island is the resort town of Ushuaia, which is called the end of the world. You can ride a steam train there that used to transport timber to the jail. Whoa. At that time, it was known as the train of prisoners. Now it's the train at the end of the world because it's the southernmost railway on Earth. Both of those are cool names. Right? Yeah. When the outdoor adventuring is done, you're going to want some food. There's, of course, world-class Italian food. You'll definitely want to try empanadas. You want to talk about what empanadas are? I had an empanada, but it was in Spain. Mm -hmm. I think Americans would recognize them as Hot Pockets. (laughs) But they're sort of what Hot Pockets aspire to be. They're like a hand pie, uh, usually wrapped around some meat or vegetables or... Sometimes potatoes. Yeah. A little spicy. Something delicious like that. And they are good to put in your face. (laughs) There's also milanesa, which is kind of like South American schnitzel. It's made with a beef cutlet that's breaded and deep fried. It's often served with French fries in Argentina. Hard to argue with that. And then there's something called fugasa, which is Argentinian pizza. No sauce. It's bread and cheese, caramelized onions, sometimes some olives. Hmm. Cheesy bread. Yeah. Looks amazing. Sounds good. I would be remiss if I didn't talk about two more delicious things. Okay. Dulce de leche and yerba mate. Dulce de leche is like caramel, but woe to the person who says it is caramel. (laughs) Wow. This is a very important point in Argentina. Okay. Caramel is made from water and sugar. Dulce de leche is made from milk and sugar plus a little vanilla. So it's creamier and richer. It's drizzled on ice cream. It's used in alfajores. These are sandwich cookies, like two rounds of shortbread with dulce de leche in the middle. 
I also read that people spread dulce de leche on waffles. Okay, yerba mate. Yeah. It's the most consumed beverage in Argentina. One of the videos I watched said, it's also the most loyal friend that you don't have yet. I'm very curious. Is this a tea? Is it alcoholic? Okay, again, woe to the person who calls it tea in Argentina. Oh, all right. It is a tea-like drink. It has the same amount of caffeine as coffee. It's a bitterish green brew made from the dried leaves of the yerba mate plant. Yerba mate means gourd herb. It's traditionally served in a hollowed out gourd and sipped through a metallic straw called a bombilla. All right. I'm going to share a video in show notes that goes into depth about how important it is in Argentinian culture. All right. People drink it all day long. You have a thermos of hot water, you have your gourd that has the leaves in it, and you just keep topping off the water in the gourd. And it's very social. When you get together with friends, you sit in a circle, you drink from your gourd, you refill the water, and you pass it to the person on the right. It always passes clockwise around the circle of friends. So it's like a bonding ritual, and it kind of seems like a talisman, (laughs) honestly, to help you get through your day. I read that you can put cream and sugar in it, but not if you're Argentinian. Finally, speaking of friendship, because of the European influence, Argentines like to stand close, gesture with their hands while they speak, and it is not unusual to get the dual cheek kiss instead of a handshake. If you're socializing with Argentinian friends, always be on time for lunch, for the theater, and for football. But for social events like an asado or a dinner party or just a house party, arrive 30 to 60 minutes late. Really? Being on time to a party is considered impolite. Interesting. That's the Argentina 101. Are you ready for two truths on a lie? I am. I'm excited. I'm about to say three statements. Two of them are true. One of them is not. Mel doesn't know which one is the lie. Here we go. One of the most famous Argentines is probably Pope Francis. Right. Yeah, he is the current pope, if you need to catch up on your papal history. He was elected a little over 10 years ago. He is the first pope from South America and the first pope from the Western Hemisphere. Wow. Yeah. Glad to see they're broadening their hiring practices at the Vatican there. (laughs) So here's the statement. The pope was a bouncer at a club in Buenos Aires. (laughs) Statement two. So if you were born in the U.S., you probably heard the phrase, dig a hole to China. It was frequently seen in old Bugs Bunny cartoons where a character would start digging and come up in some racist version of China, which brings us to the second statement. If you want to dig to China, you must start in Argentina. (laughs) And statement three, a team of Argentinian bank robbers executed the greatest heist of all time. I can't wait to hear that one. (laughs) So from the top. The first statement, the Pope was a bouncer at a club in Buenos Aires. That sounds so crazy. I'm going to say it's true. I like saying that just because it sounds like a Tom Waits lyric. (laughs) And beyond being fun, it is also true. When he was working on his priesthood, the Pope worked the door at a club in his hometown. (laughs) While I was doing the research for this, I also found out that Pope Francis is a Tolkien fan, which created the delightful image in my head of a bored 20-something sitting in a stool outside of a club in Argentina sometime in the 50s, flipping through two towers and waiting for his shift to end (laughs) so he could go home and study up on how to be the Pope someday. (laughs) So statement two, 
If you want to dig to China, you must start in Argentina. I don't know what that means. <laughs> so I'll say true. <laughs> so it's not true, but it is true in spirit. <laughs> Theoretically, you could dig a hole to China from any country. But what we're really talking about is two points opposite each other on the globe. Right? We have a name for those. They're antipodes. Oh, cool. A new vocabulary word. Yeah. On the page, it looks like antipodes, mm -hmm. but that's not what people say. If the earth were a basketball and you were going to hold it with your index fingers, you'd put your fingers on the antipodes. Argentina is the antipode of China. Beijing and Buenos Aires almost line up. If you dug a hole through the earth and figured out how to survive the white-hot molten core and the incredible <laughs> pressure, you could jump in just outside of Buenos Aires, and 42 exhilarating minutes later, you would come out near Beijing. Neat. Yeah. Bonus fun fact, the Pacific Ocean is its own antipode. What? Yeah. <laughs> Back to the basketball thing, if you put your finger on the Gulf of Tonkin, which is just off the South China Sea, your other finger would be just off the coast of Chile, and both of your fingers would be in the Pacific Ocean. That's a big pond. It is a big pond. Okay, statement three. A team of Argentinian bank robbers executed the greatest heist of all time. True, true, true. <laughs> so that's a lie. Because I think we don't know about the greatest heist of all time. No, good point. <laughs> yeah, I believe that team is living anonymously somewhere, content with their lives and what they did, and happy to be quiet and extremely wealthy. Reading a bunch of books. Yeah. Which, now that I say that, seems like an unusual combination of personalities, right? The master thief and content with one's life. Mm -hmm. But maybe it's happened. But this story, this story is different. This is a heist we know about. And as far as heists we know about, this is easily in the top five. <laughs> so it started just after noon in January of 2006 in a well-to-do suburb of Buenos Aires. Police are told there's a bank robbery in progress. They show up. They establish a perimeter. The thieves are still inside, but so are 23 hostages. Classic bank robbery setup. Pretty soon, the press shows up and the entire nation watches this unfold on live TV. The cops set up communication with the man inside. He calls himself Walter. Walter says that while they realize they are surrounded, they will not give up. The mood inside of the bank seems oddly cheerful. Hmm. At one point, two robbers sing happy birthday to one of the hostages. That seems like it would be terrifying. <laughs> yeah. At 3.30, Walter orders pizza. He says people are getting hungry. and. Pizzas are delivered. And then Walter goes quiet. And the police aren't sure what to do about that. Do we storm the place? Do we wait? And the hours tick by. And around 7 p.m., a team of special forces officers burst into the bank. It is quiet in the bank. They look around. They find the hostages. But they don't find any thieves. Hmm. But they do find what the thieves were looking for. In the basement, there are 400 safety deposit boxes, and about 140 of those have been popped and emptied. Argentines don't trust the banks for reasons. As recently as 2001, the national bank system collapsed, and ever since then, people have been using safe deposit boxes for cash, jewelry, and whatever. The cops find a few other things. There is a row of toy guns left behind, mm -hmm. like squirt guns. 
And above the guns, there's a handwritten note, and it says, In a neighborhood of rich people, without weapons or grudges, it's just money, not love. (laughs) The thieves disappear. The news said they lifted almost $20 million in cash and valuables. Wow. And the police have no leads. Amazing. (laughs) That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. So I'm going to fly over the rest of the story because there is a lot of story here. But here are the highlights. The team of thieves included seven guys. Two of them were old friends. Two guys had grown up together. One of them was the mastermind and the other was an engineer. He had mechanical talents. The team also involved two other guys, one of whom everybody called Doc and another one, Beto. They were the muscle. And there was also, and I am not making this up, a stylish, charming, and retired cat burglar who had done well for himself but came back for just one more heist. Oh, come on. I swear. (laughs) (laughs) He was Walter, the man the cops spoke with. So that's five, two friends, the two muscle guys, and a cat burglar. There was a driver. And there was a man who, to this day, has never been identified. (laughs) I love that detail. (laughs) Their plan from the start was to make it look like they already lost, like they had nowhere to go, and then leave the bank by going down. They got out by building a tunnel into the bank from the sewers underneath. The engineer had spent weeks in the sewer just digging that out leaving just a half inch or so for game day. They got in and they broke that. They hauled the loot down there. They descended into the sewers. They pulled a heavy cabinet over the hole that they had created on top. Then they used motorized rubber boats to get away into the sewers. From there, the loot was loaded through a manhole into a van. When the police broke through the bank door, the team was home eating pizza and watching their own robbery on TV. (laughs) The thieves did many clever things. They left behind what appeared to be a getaway vehicle. That was just a decoy. Mm -hmm. They had hoped the cops would find it and assume they are going to come back out the main door. When they left the bank, they spread hair clippings they'd gotten from a barber all over the scene in hopes that it would cloud any DNA results. (laughs) The day after the robbery, the engineer took all the credit cards they'd found in the safe deposit boxes and scattered them all over the city. So people would see the cards and then try to use them or turn them in. And every time a card came up, a cop had to investigate. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, they got busted because of Beto, the muscle. Five weeks after the heist, Beto was out for a drive with his girlfriend and the cops pulled him over. And that really pissed off his wife. (laughs) She called the cops and she turned all of them in. No. The police, yeah, the police rounded up five of the guys. When they did that, they only recovered a small fraction of what had been stolen. When they asked Beto about the money, he said, you know, when they arrested me, I got a big knock on my head. I haven't been able to remember so well since. (laughs) If you want to know more about this story, there are many books and a few movies. Netflix has a full-length documentary called Bank Robbers, The Last Great Heist. Four of the thieves talk about their roles in the robbery. GQ also did a fantastic article. We'll point to all of that in our show notes. That's two truths and a lie. I'm sad they got caught. Oh, they did okay for themselves. Okay. The thieves became sort of famous. Mm-hmm. Each one of them made, wrote a book. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> the money was still vanished. 
when the reporter went to meet with one of them, the thief took him out to dinner and the reporter went to pay for it. And the thief said, no, let the bank pay for it. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. Yeah. (laughs) That's good. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores, and it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free, and when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Are you ready to talk about books? I am. My first recommendation is The Gods of Tango by Carolina de Robetis. It's set in Buenos Aires in the early 1900s, and it's a lush story about immigration, found family, tango, and sexual identity. In real life, there was a massive wave of immigration from Italian and Spanish immigrants to Argentina in the late 19th century. In this book, it's 1913, our heroine, Leda, leaves her Italian village to join her husband in Buenos Aires. She is just 17 years old. She has a small trunk and one family heirloom, her father's violin. On the upside, she knows her husband. It's not some stranger she's going to meet in Buenos Aires. He's a lifelong friend from the village, and their plan has always been to escape this small, claustrophobic life together and start fresh in the Americas. So they're going to take the big jump across the Atlantic. He's already there. She's going to meet him. When she arrives at the dock in Buenos Aires, she's met by a stranger. Her husband, Dante, has been killed by the police at a labor protest. Oh, no. Yeah. So she makes her way to the tenement that was supposed to be their home. Completely unclear what's supposed to happen to her now. Yeah. Before I tell you what she does next, I want to talk about immigrant life in Buenos Aires a little bit. The urban tenements in Buenos Aires were called conventillos. They were big mansions, palaces that were repurposed as living complexes with dozens of people, maybe 60, sometimes more than 100, sharing one kitchen and one or two bathrooms. So an entire family would live in one room or say six to eight bachelors might share a room and sleep in shifts. Wow. The women worked from home doing laundry or light sewing to make a little extra money. So it created this sense of communal living where they were sharing a lot of spaces, like they waited in line together for the bathroom or to get water. Sometimes they shared meals together. Right. In this book, a lot of the people who live in the conventio where Leda is are Italian, but there were many ethnicities living in these little communes together. And on Sundays, they would often have a shared lunch, and then they would bring out the instruments, and that's where tango was born. I didn't know that. That's, that's such a lovely image. 
it's kind of romantic, right? Yeah. It's kind of nice to think like the rest of their life was really hard, but they had this time on Sunday where they made music together. And danced. So Leda is living in the Conventio where Dante used to live. She has like no options. She's widowed, single woman, not even a woman, teenager. Yeah. She doesn't want to be a prostitute. There are not jobs for women besides like this little piecemeal sewing projects. And she has no family. And she has no interest in going back nor the resources to do that. Exactly. But she loves music and she has a natural gift for playing the violin. So you're like, oh, problem solved. Except women can't play music. Oh. It's frowned on at home. It's impossible in public. Then Leda gets a diabolically good idea. She chops off her hair, binds her breasts, dresses in men's clothing, and takes her husband's name. Leda becomes Dante. Wow. It's exhilarating. The first time she walks down the street as a man is a revelation to her. She realizes that she can go anywhere she wants to. Right. And no one's going to look askance. She's out at night, alone. This has never happened to her before in her life. She starts to work on her swagger. She sees a guy spit in the street, and she's like, I'm going to try that. (laughs) And most of all, she can play the violin in public. Right. So she is liberated. Yeah. Except (laughs) there are some dangerous logistical challenges to this. Like bathing in the shared bathroom. Right. Or wriggling out of the post-show trip to the brothel. Just keeping a secret when everybody's living right on top of each other. Exactly. Like you could never leave your room. And you can never let your guard down. Yeah. Like if her truth is found out, she could be raped. She could be killed. Dante is also, I'm going to switch to male pronouns now because Dante has become Dante. Dante is also struggling with his identity because he realizes that not only does he feel more comfortable living as a man, he loves women. Oh. Mm -hmm. So this story gives us the whole arc of Dante's life from immigrant girl to male musician. And it has everything. Brawls, heartfelt conversations, smoky bars where fights break out and prostitutes are propositioning you all the time. Yeah. Elegant dance halls filled with the sounds of the tango. There are these beautiful moments of real camaraderie with Dante's found family, but then you remember he's keeping this terrible secret. And then there's some just heartbreaking betrayal. I mean, the story has everything you want in a story. (laughs) The author is really good at writing about music, which is a hard thing to do. It is, yeah. The descriptions made me feel the yearning that the tango was creating in the musicians and the dancers. I want to read you a snippet from the first time Leda Dante hears the tango in the courtyard. He counted to four and then it happened. Music. It surged out of string and finger in harsh communion, weeping from the terrible pleasure of the bow. Guitar strings shook and deepened the well of sorrow. Carlo sang, something about the night clutching his heart, something about a woman. The sound ensnared her. It invaded her bones, urged her blood. She didn't know herself. It now occurred to her that she knew nothing about the world, could not have known a thing when she didn't know the world contained this sensation, such sound, such wakefulness, a melody as rich as night. 
Well, that's an evocative piece of writing. Yeah, this book is filled with really beautiful passages like that. It's also a fascinating exploration of gender roles. In addition to Dante, there are his hyper-masculine bandmates. And I mean, it makes sense, right? This is a tough town and a tough time. Like, you would want to come across as strong and manly and not to be messed with. Yeah. There's a woman club owner who defies all of the social norms by running the club herself. Unheard of for a woman at the time. And then there's a very feminine tango singer who wears a suit and fedora when she performs, but also lipstick and mascara. So she's very, very girly, but she's wearing men's clothes, which is blowing people's minds. That character was inspired by a real tango singer named Azucena Maizani. I'll put a video of her singing in show notes. Having said all of that serious stuff, this is a very entertaining book. The plot kept me turning pages because I needed to know what was going to happen to Dante. I kept thinking, how is he going to get out of this mess <laughs> that he's painted himself into? Yeah. The author does a really good job and nailed the ending. That's The Gods of Tango by Carolina de Robertis. My first book is Who is Vera Kelly by Rosalie Necht. I feel like the title and the cover are sort of a strong head fake on this book. The title in particular makes me think of like movie trailers from the 90s. Meet Vera Kelly. Mm -hmm. She's a down-on-her-luck 20-something just <laughs> trying to make a difference. <laughs> and this book is very much not that. This, this book starts paragraph one with Vera almost overdosing on tranquilizers. It also introduces Vera's unsympathetic mother. And from there, the story unfolds about a young woman who's a spy for the CIA in the mid-60s. Cool. Yeah. For most of the book, Vera is in Buenos Aires monitoring the oncoming coup. There are stakes in the story. The coup is based on history. In June of 1966, President Ilya gave up control to one of the generals in Argentina, in part because that general had tanks rolling in the streets. So those are two layers of the book. There's a spy story. There's historical fiction story. But there's another layer. Who is Vera Kelly is mostly the coming-of-age story of a young, capable lesbian trying to figure out her life in the middle of the 1960s. And the blend of those things is pretty glorious. Just from a writing level, those stories intertwine and support each other and sort of have things to say about one another. The story is told in alternating timelines. So in the first chapter, we get Vera in late 1957 growing up in Chevy Chase, Maryland. And in the next chapter, Vera is in her mid-20s and she's doing spy work in Argentina. Necht doesn't give us anything to tie those things together for quite a while. There are short chapters where we bounce back and forth between the two timelines. Eventually, we find out that Vera is estranged from her family and that she's in Buenos Aires to do some wiretapping and to infiltrate a group of student activists who might be communists. We don't know. The lack of information really drives this book forward, right? When we meet Vera, we're given enough information to care about her and, and no more. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. And then when we finally got a handle on who she is, we're hip deep into a bunch of trouble that she's gotten into. A gun has come into her possession. A bomb is being built somewhere. The state has fallen. Her friends might have abandoned her. There are a lot of questions about who she can trust and what's happening. 
The author does an excellent job of exploring the idea that being a closeted gay person with a horrible mother might qualify you for espionage. <laughs> good at keeping secrets. Uh-huh. Fear is good at subverting her identity and reading the room quickly and using coded language. But she also considers herself expendable. All of that is so sad. Being a spy... Like on the surface, spy stories are so fun and exciting and glamorous and kind of sexy. Right. And then when you think about it, it's so sad because you're permanently separated from other people. Yeah, it feels like there's a certain like maturity in spy stories where that switches, right? There's the sort of high action, high octane spy stories that look all sexy and romantic. And then there are the spy stories where the spy eventually realizes that he's out in the cold. Right? Yep. There's very little room between those two things. <laughs> So here's a bit from the book that talks about Vera's sense of herself in the middle of this. As Jerry had said, if things went bad, I could be killed. And yet, in the place where my fear should have been, there was a blank space. I felt that I had been living for a long time in a place beyond fear, where my life was contingent and didn't amount to much anyway. Back home, I had known that if I was arrested at a dike bar, I would lose my job, and if I lost my job, I would end up in a flop house or worse. I went out anyway, because living was a dry waste if I didn't. When I started working for Gary and made enough money to keep some in the bank, I knew that if Gary found out I went with girls, I would be fired twice over. The CIA did not pay out to homosexuals because they were too easy to compromise. This book also has some things to say about Argentina. If you're headed there, you'll get some places to look for. But it also will broaden your appreciation for the recent history and what those people have gone through. One of the things that NECT explores is the idea of a population that routinely goes through coup d'etat. Mm -hmm. We meet a restaurant owner who's upset because he doesn't know anyone in the incoming regime. Not that they're rolling tanks in his town, but he doesn't know anyone in the incoming right. government. And that gave me a big taste of what that must be like, that you must not only run the restaurant, but you must also be on the inside with the ruling power and distance yourself from the toppled. The old mm -hmm. pictures come down and the new pictures go up. Yep. This book is the start of a trilogy. All three books are out now. The second book is set in the Dominican Republic and the third in Los Angeles in the early 1970s. According to the reviews I read, all three are thrillers that follow Vera's growth as a person, and all three explore the evolution of queer culture during their respective eras. This book kept me going. It's a good historical spy story with shifting alliances and trust issues. It's also a good coming-of-age novel about a woman growing up during hard times. And Neck does a great job of using one story to support the other. That's Who is Vera Kelly by Rosalie Necht. My second recommendation is A Quiet Flame by Philip Kerr. This is a hard-boiled noir thriller set in 1950 Buenos Aires with flashbacks to 1932 Berlin. It features one of my all-time favorite heroes, or maybe I should say anti-heroes, Bernie Gunther. I've been wanting to read one of these for, I don't know, 20, 30 years yeah. now. Oh, they're so good. And mostly because every time you read one, you say, these are so good and you should read one immediately. <laughs> Bernie stars in 14 novels, and most of them explore his experiences as a police investigator and later as a private eye during the World War II era. So leading up to the war, the Weimar Republic, war and post-war. 
history lessons galore, but all told through this hard-boiled, snappy prose. A cool thing about the series is that it jumps around in Bernie's history. It is not chronological, so you can read them in any order. So this could be a fine place to start. I need to tell you about Bernie. Okay. Bernie is your classic decent man in bad circumstances. He's mostly well-intentioned detective with a high close rate on his cases. He is very good at his job. He has a sardonic sense of humor, and he has a troublesome weakness for damsels in distress. Yeah. He falls desperately in love with the wrong woman over and over again. (laughs) And either ends up in mortal danger or with a shattered heart or both. Right. If Bernie is on your side, you're in good hands. If he sets his sights on you as an enemy, look out. He's very wily. And his best quality, he hates Nazis. (laughs) He hates them. He's a native Berliner with a live and let live philosophy. So fascists just rub him the wrong way. But he would like to keep breathing. So on and off throughout the books, he finds himself working alongside Nazis, sometimes trying to bring them down from within, sometimes just trying to stay alive. The voice that Philip Kerr gave Bernie is very distinctive. I want to read you a snip from this book. This is Bernie describing somebody else. I've seen healthier-looking men in coffins. He was about five feet, six inches tall, with lank, greasy gray hair, eyebrows that look like two halves of a mustache that have been separated for its own good, and a rat's narrow features. He wore a cheap suit and a vest that looked like a rag in a mechanic's greasy hands. There was a bottle in his coat pocket that was probably his breakfast, and in the corner of his mouth, a length of drooping tobacco ash that had once been a cigarette. As he spoke, it fell onto the floor. You can see the fedora, right? Yeah, that feels a lot like Chandler to me. Yeah, it definitely has that vibe. This book opens in 1950s Buenos Aires. Bernie has been falsely identified as a war criminal in Europe. So he's taking advantage of the open arms offered by Argentina. He's going to start a new life on the other side of the planet. He's traveled under a false name, but it's not too long before the local police realize they have a star detective in their midst. And Bernie is pressured into investigating two cases, a gruesome murder and a kidnapping. And they seem to have a connection to one of his unsolved cases from Berlin in 1932. In real life, Argentina was officially neutral during World War II, but it had close ties to Germany. There were hundreds of thousands of German immigrants living there. After the war, President Juan Perón secretly set up what were called rat lines to smuggle high-ranking Nazis out of Europe and into Argentina. Historians are divided on whether Evita was a Nazi sympathizer or not, There are rumors that she accepted gold stolen from Jewish families during the Holocaust. But after Perón's eventual fall from grace, a bunch of documentation was burned. So it's unclear if Ava knew what he was up to or not with the rat lines. It's all pretty messy. Boy, that really takes the romance right out of that story, doesn't it? It does. It really does. As Bernie investigates these new cases and revisits his memories of the old one back in Berlin, he gets dangerously close to Evita and her husband. And his suspects include a slew of very unlikable rich people, plus a who's who of Nazis hiding out 
including Joseph Mengele, who you might know as the Angel of Death from Auschwitz, and Adolf Eichmann, one of the organizers of the Holocaust. Yeah. So he got out of Berlin and again finds himself among the people he hates. Philip Kerr, the author, dives into research the way, say, Eric Larson does for his nonfiction books. I found a great video that I'll put in show notes where Kerr is talking about how important it was for him to walk the streets of the places he wrote about. That shows in all of his books. This one taught me all kinds of things I didn't know about Argentina and World War II. But it's woven into the story in a way that doesn't make it feel like research on the page. This is stuff that's driving the plot. And then in the author's note at the end, Philip Kerr explains how he took the real history and wove that into his story. So Chandler mixed together with Larson sounds like catnip for me. Yeah, I read a review that described his books as history lessons as escapism. And I was like, oh, I wish I'd thought of that. Yeah. It's good. This book is chilling and suspenseful. And because Bernie is Bernie, he falls hard for a beautiful woman. But this one is actually good for him. What? But that romance reveals other heartbreaking truths. Because our man Bernie can't be happy. That's silly. (laughs) This is the book for you if you like World War II stories and snappy dialogue and bad guys getting their well-deserved comeuppance, all mixed in with fascinating history that drives a page-turning plot. It's A Quiet Flame by Philip Kerr. My second book is Seven Empty Houses by Samantha Schweblin and translated by Megan McDonald. This is a collection of short stories that are described as literary horror. It could be a thesis for a master's degree in creepy. (laughs) To me, these stories feel a lot like a bad dream that started when you're drifting off and you're thinking about your house or your to-do list or whatever, and then things get weird and details get amplified and people who are maybe your friends start doing something they don't normally do. And before you know it, you're wide awake and thinking, what the hell was that? (laughs) All of the stories in Seven Empty Houses start as domestic tales about people who seem to be just on the other side of a breakdown. In the first story, two women, a mother and a daughter, are driving around looking at houses in an upscale neighborhood. We don't know why they're doing that. But it's clear that they have done this many times before. And then mom, mom's driving, mom tries to turn the car around and gets caught in a yard. The wheels are spinning, but the car isn't moving. And while they're trying to get out, they're wrecking the lawn. And it's a nice lawn. And they're caught by the woman who lives there. And the woman seems very unhappy with this development. So. We've got this weird, tense scene with tones of racism and classism, where as a reader, we still have questions about paragraph one. (laughs) And we're only at the bottom of like page two. Awesome. Yeah. So things just keep getting deeper and deeper for the mother and daughter. Eventually, the daughter who's narrating the story tells us that her mom has this habit, maybe a compulsion probably a compulsion, that drives her to go out to straighten other people's yards. Oh. Shrevelin writes, For as long as I can remember, we've gone out to look at houses, removed unsuitable flowers and pots from their gardens. We've moved sprinklers, straightened mailboxes, relocated lawn ornaments that were too heavy for the grass. As soon as my feet reached the pedals, I started to take over driving, which gave my mother more freedom. Once, by herself, she moved a white wooden bench and put it in the yard of the house across the street. 
<laughs> and that's not the bottom of that story. That's sort of a mid-arc reveal. Sure. There's another story about a man who simply can't seem to accept his son's death, just seems incapable of doing that, which brings up a lot of ideas about how we haunt one another and what is an appropriate level of grief anyway. Mm-hmm. And there's another story that centers around a man's parents. They're older. And for most of the story, they're out in the backyard, naked, dancing, and playing with a water hose. And that's happening while the man inside is trying to host his ex-wife, their kids, and her new boyfriend. I mean, that does sound like a nightmare. (laughs) This little social event is not going well. (laughs) There was a second when I was reading that story when I was wondering if the point was that the author thought we should all be out naked dancing in the backyard, (laughs) playing with the hose. What's the problem? The story, I think, that made the biggest impression on me is called Breath from the Depths. This is longer, maybe a novella even. It's about an older woman, Lola, who starts in a bad position and goes downhill from there. The first couple of lines of the story are are this. The list was part of a plan. Lola suspected that her life had been too long, so simple and light that now it lacked the weight needed to disappear. After studying the experiences of some acquaintances, she had concluded that even in old age, death needed a final push, an emotional nudge, or a physical one. And she couldn't give that to her body. She wanted to die, but every morning, inevitably, she woke up again. As that story goes on, she slowly spirals into dementia. She forgets things. She grows paranoid. She starts making up stories that don't seem to have any truth to them. She realizes something is wrong, but she can't quite put her finger on it. Lola writes lists to help her manage, but then she's also surprised by the list when she sees it again. Mm -hmm. The story is written so well that it felt like I was going through the stages as Lola was. In the end, I was also trying to figure out what was real and what was fabricated. And when did we write that note? And is the kid next door conspiring with the husband somehow? And I know that's not a ride that everyone will want to take, but I found it compelling. I want to mention the translator. All of Schweblin's books that are available in English have been translated by Megan McDowell. She is a very gifted translator. Together, she and Schweblin won the 2022 National Book Award for Translated Literature for this book. McDowell has also worked with another Argentinian woman who writes dark short stories, Mariana Enriquez. Mm -hmm. McDowell translated her books, The Dangers of Smoking in Bed and Things We Lost in the Fire. I read Things We Lost in the Fire and seriously considered it for our show. They are very unsettling horror stories without supernatural elements, which makes them harder, I think, to deal with, which sounds like very similar to the stories you're talking about. Yeah, It's the horror of real life told in the heightened state of ghost stories. And yeah, they punched me in the face. Yeah. I feel like these, all three of these books would make a really nice Go along if you're into... If you're into getting punched in the face. <laughs> getting punched yeah. in the face, yeah. Yeah, in my imagination, these three women have a lively but very intense tea party every year or so. <laughs> Yerba mate. <laughs> yeah. 
If you're curious about exploring the lives of Argentinian women through the words of a short story writer with a dark bent, I recommend you give this a go. It's Seven Empty Houses by Samantha Shrevelin, translated by Megan McDonnell. My final recommendation is a crime novel called Betty Boo. It's by Claudia Pinheiro and translated by Miranda France. This story takes place in modern Buenos Aires in two radically different and really fascinating settings. The first is the newsroom of El Tribuno newspaper, and the second is a posh-gated community called La Maravillosa, which is loosely translated to something like The Wonderful. So this posh community has absurd levels of security at its gate. And the story opens on a Monday morning with a huge line of domestic workers waiting to get through security. There are housekeepers, gardeners, plumbers, carpenters, electricians, all the people it takes to keep the homes of the rich people inside running. Right. So they're all waiting to show their credentials and get into work. They have to get their IDs checked. Their bags are searched. The security guards ask them if they have any valuables that they want to claim because they make a list before they go in so that when they come out at the end of the day, they're not accused of stealing things from the houses where they work. La Maravillosa is a secure place, right, for the rich to live outside the fray and the dangers of city life. So it's doubly shocking when a housemaid reports to work and finds her employer sitting in his favorite chair with his throat slit. Oh. Yeah, we're off to the races. (laughs) The dead guy was a very wealthy industrialist, and his murder is big news. Not only because he's super dead, but because his wife died mysteriously a few years before, and many people believe he murdered her, even though they couldn't prove it. So this book is about uncovering the truth of who murdered him and why. But instead of following a detective through the evidence, we walk alongside three reporters who are writing about this high-profile murder. So we meet Jaime. He's a crime reporter at El Tribuno. But he's recently been demoted to writing a society column for reasons. Mm. Mm -hmm. He has decades of experience busting crime stories wide open, but now he's writing about stupid stuff like the percentage of women who sleep on their backs. They're trying to force him to retire. His replacement on the crime desk is a noob straight out of school. He has a real name, but he's called Crime Boy throughout the book. (laughs) He has no idea how to hit the street, ferret out information, interview people. He just wants to sit in the office and do things online. So he's looking on Twitter. He's going into message boards. As you might imagine, he and Jaime. Not on the same wavelength. No. And then the heroine of the story is Norit Iskar. She's the Betty Boo of the title because she resembles Betty Boop. She has black curly hair and she's kind of curvy. But more than that, she's very sassy and modern and sexy. Early on in the book, somebody thinks she's like Betty Boop and she gets this nickname, Betty Boo. She is a novelist turned ghostwriter. She's also the former lover of the editor of El Tribuno newspaper. So when this murder happens, the editor gets this idea that it would be really cool to have Betty Boo go live in a house in La Maravillosa infiltrate the neighbors and write color stories about what's going on. Oh, that seems like a dangerous path. While Crime Boy is writing the straight up crime stories about what's going on. He's going to two-prong this story because 
everybody in Buenos Aires is talking about it. Right. So before too long, the three of them, Betty Boo, Jaime, and Crime Boy, team up to investigate. And what they find is much darker and more complicated than they ever expected. That sounds great. There is a lot to love about this book. First, Betty Boo has really solid friendships with two other women, and it was a joy to spend time with them. They have a standing tradition one Sunday a month that I love. They meet at one of their houses before lunch, and the hostess buys all of the Sunday newspapers. And then while she's cooking, the others pull apart the newspapers, hunt for interesting stories to share. Then they eat lunch, and when they're finished eating, they drink coffee and read news stories to each other. Oh, that's nice. I thought that was such a cool idea. Yeah. I want to steal that idea. Yeah. The other thing I really enjoyed is that the main characters, Betty Boo and her friends and Jaime, are full-on adults. They are middle-aged or older. They've had disappointments. They have the scars to prove it. But they're also experienced and self-aware, and they know how to do things. And these are all qualities that help them succeed in this story. It was so refreshing to have (laughs) adults held up as heroes. Also, if you like behind-the-scenes details about people's work, this book would have worked very well in our newsroom episode. There's a lot of insider detail about the workings of a newspaper and how reporters doggedly follow a story and how they can do things that the police can't. And as much as I enjoyed the characters, and I really, really did, They are working in service of a really good, twisty, meaty murder mystery that uncovers a really disturbing event from the past. The tone of the book is really interesting because the friendships are, I'm going to say light, but I don't mean that they don't have depth. It's just, it's bright. It's buoyant. Like these friendships have a very positive quality to them. And then the crime that they uncover is so dark. And so I'm just going to say yucky. (laughs) (laughs) So it's a really interesting juxtaposition. Right. And I really enjoyed it. So it's like the Ted Lasso character is walking into the plot of Gone Girl or something. Yes, that is a really good description. That's awesome. But now, full disclosure, I have to tell you about something that might be a problem for some people. The book is written in the present tense with very long paragraphs. Sometimes the paragraph stretches over a page or two yep. or more. Okay. And there are no quotation marks around the dialogue. Oh. I know. Mm. I know. That makes it sound terrible. <laughs> <laughs> but here's my argument in favor. And I will say that I read it on the Kindle, and sometimes when I was looking at those Kindle pages of text with no breaks, it was a little daunting. Sure. But the chapters are about... 10 to 15 minutes to read. That's how I read the book. I would read a chapter and then I would put it down for a little bit and then I would get a drink, get a cup of tea, whatever. That helped me kind of manage that there was no break for my eye. Right. And it's always clear who's speaking, even though there are no quotation marks. Okay. That part was really easy once I realized what was going on. So I was never confused. The story is 100% worth that little bit of nitpicking. Yeah. But fair warning. If you know, that would bother you. This book did two things for me. It gave me people I enjoyed to hang out with. And I love a dark, dark mystery. So I really enjoyed this. And the ending is very satisfying. This book is Betty Boo, 
by Claudio Pineda and translated by Miranda France. Those are five books we love set in Argentina. Visit our show notes at strongsenseofplace.com for links and details. We will take you on one of the greatest heists of all time and introduce you to some lovely music and, I suspect, recipes. Yes, I'm going to be sharing a recipe from Milanesa. But I also want to say, we always say, go to strongsenseofplace.com. Yep. In your podcast app, if you scroll down, there is a handy link. You can just tap it and it will take you straight to the show notes. None of that pesky typing required. Quickly, I wanted to mention, if you like what we do, help us out. We've got a Patreon at strongsenseofplace.com slash support. But also, you could just tell somebody. Just find a reader who also likes and enjoys the podcast and, and let them know. I just want to chime in and say that after every episode, we have an open discussion on our Patreon page. And the discussion about theater was so much fun. So if you want to hang out with other like-minded readers who love to travel and really, really nice, smart people, consider joining our Patreon. It's a good time. Mel, where are we headed for our next episode? We're going to eat popcorn and cotton candy and soft serve ice cream. And then we're going to go on roller coasters until our stomachs hurt. <laughs> wow. Yeah. We're going to the amusement park. Thanks for listening. And we'll talk to you soon. <laughs>